good oak. It's a joy to be back again today. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 3. Gospel according to St. John chapter 3. I'm looking around for my little friend that I saw crawling around up here. I was hoping he'd, I was hoping he'd crawl in another direction. I bowed my head to, to pray and meditate a little bit. When I opened my eyes, he was gone. So, pardon Oh, I don't guess that's what it was. I don't know. Well, you want him? Take him home with you. You don't want him. Okay. You tried to go. Okay. Well, anyway, you'll give me an A for effort. Uh, it is a delight to be back, but I appreciate your pastor calling and asking me to fill in for him in his absence, and you pray for him while he's gone. Um, John chapter 3. If you're able to, would you stand with me, please, in reverence to the Word of God. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. In John 3, beginning with verse 14, Jesus, and keep in mind, he's, he's responding to uh, Nicodemus still for the entire chapter. In verse 14, he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, for sake of time, would you drop down with me, please, to verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath, present tense, everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Heavenly Father, I pray thy blessing on the preaching time this morning. Thank you for the sweet spirit that always abides here. I pray your blessing upon Brother Brewer as he travels, and Jonathan, uh, protect them, Lord, on the roads and give them safety. And I pray that you bring them back refreshed. Father, have your will done in the service today in every heart. And I do pray, O oh God, that if there is one here today, member or visitor, to make any difference, who's not 100% sure for a Bible reason, if they died, they'd go to heaven. I pray that you'd help that one to realize and sense his or her need, and once and for all be willing to turn to you and get it settled. I pray that you'd challenge us today. Minister to every need in this room, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. I'm going to preach this morning. I don't really know what they call the message on, on four timeless uh, truths that could save the world. Um, on November the 24th, 1945, I was born, and I discovered England. I was born in Gloucester, England. Uh, my, uh, November the 24th, being near Christmas, being near Thanksgiving, my mother didn't have to buy a turkey. She just gave birth to one. <laughs> that is funny. Laugh. Laugh a little louder than that, though, please. <laughs> Um, but that was 76 years ago, almost 77. Um, when I was 10 years old, uh, 
well, what about six years later, we, we moved over here to the States from England. When I was 10 years old, there living in the Bay Area in California, a godly Sunday school teacher named Roy Baltina took me into his home. They opened the Bible and they shared with me one verse, one sentence, that's all. John 3.16. And he told me from that sentence alone, the sweetest love story I've ever heard. And that day, I discovered salvation. Jesus, Jesus found me. We often say, I found the Lord. And I understand what you mean, and, and you did. But really, he was the one looking a lot more than you were. Um, if you go through the Old Testament, you'll often find that it, 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 uh, the people are commanded to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he's near. Seek the Lord. That seems to be the emphasis in the Old Testament. When you get to the New Testament, you'll still find that we're to seek the Lord. However, the emphasis is on Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. But on that day, I got saved. So for 66 years, I've, I've known Christ. Um, when I was 17 years of age, I, I, well, actually just a little bit before then, I, I felt the call of God upon my life. Can't explain it to you. It's just something you have to, you know, experience yourself. But I knew God was calling me into the ministry. And I knew, I actually, uh, I, I think I knew that I would be in the ministry eventually, right after I got saved. didn't take long to figure it out. Uh, but when I was 17, I began preaching. That means then that I've been, I've been uh, alive physically. I've existed for 76 years. But I've, I've really lived for 66 years. Been saved that long. I've been preaching the gospel now for 59 years. I've been in um, evangelism for a total. If you add them all up, there he is. I've been in evangelism for 49 years. I've preached in uh, in uh, over 40 states in continental U.S. and across both oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific. Now, I said all that to say this. You would think after that many years, that much travel and that much experience, that you'd learn a few lessons down the road. I'm talking about important, vital um, uh, lessons of life. And I've learned some. I've learned four, at least. And I'd like to share them with you. Now, these, are, these lessons, these truths, are extremely simple. They're so simple. Nothing profound about this message. If you came to learn something this morning, I'm sorry, you're going to go away disappointed. I'm not going to teach you anything you did not know. These lessons that I call the four most profound, the most important lessons of life, um, you can teach, if you can get on his level, you can teach a five or a six-year-old. You talk on his level, he can understand it. So simple. So simple. I would say when I was 10, Brother Elmo Parker, dear friend of mine who's with the Lord now, pastored our church for 45 years. God said when he was nine. Our assistant pastor, Brother Scott Miller, God said when he was six. I'm saying you can take these simple gospel truths and explain them to a small child, and if you explain them on his level, 
That's the problem most of us have is getting down on their level. You explain them on his level, and they're so simple, so simple, that even a child could understand them. No wonder Jesus said numerous times, let the little children come to me. He knew they could understand. You know, it's, 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 it's funny, not half funny, but strange funny. When, when referring to children, Jesus said, get out of their way and let them come. When referring to adults, he said, go and beg them, compel them to come in. Well, the child, even now, if you explain it to him, if you've got a tender heart at all, it's not hard to win a child to Jesus Christ. What I'm going to share with you this morning, that share, that sounds like a liberal, doesn't it? What I'm going to preach on this morning is so simple. Not a, I don't say that to insult your intelligence. This looks like a fairly intelligent crowd. Well, most. Uh, I say it because it's true. However, though simple, these truths are so profound that they baffle the scholars. I'd encourage you, if you're in the practice of taking notes, get out a pencil or a pen, better yet, and write them in the, even in the back of your Bible that will help you down the road. Uh, there's only four. Very simple. We'll get out of here in time for lunch. We're having lunch today. Oh, we're having lunch today. Okay. That's what I smell then. Uh, uh, these truths, can just keep in mind, they're simple. And yet, truth number one is this. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. If I were in a liberal church and I don't preach in those kind of churches, I would say, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Jesus did not die as a martyr. He died as a savior. Jesus did not die as a hero. He died as a savior. Jesus did not die for a cause. He died for sinners. Jesus Christ died the sole reason to save sinners. Didn't die to be an example. He lived an, an example, but he didn't die to be an example. He died for one reason, and that is to save sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, that God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, we deserved to die. We deserved to go to hell. While we were yet sinners, Christ, who did no sin, died for us. That's an amazing fact, because the fact is, death is the result of sin. Jesus did no sin. Jesus had no sin. Jesus did not have the capacity to sin. He was God, and he is God. But the fact is, he died for your sins and for mine. You study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll find that when Jesus died on the cross, there are Seven things recorded that he said on the, while he was on the cross. Might have said more than these, but these seven things are recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus, according to the narrative, was placed on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning on that crucifixion day. 
They laid the cross flat on the ground and they lay stretched Jesus out on the cross and they drove the nails through his hands and his feet. At nine in the morning, while they were driving the nails through his flesh into the wood, Jesus prayed a prayer. He said, Father, forgive them. They have the foggiest idea what they're doing. Now the Bible tells us, Paul said in one of his letters to the Corinthians, had they known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But Jesus prayed for them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Then they took the cross and they stood it up erect and, and dropped it into the hole to hold it steadfast. Without a doubt, the weight of his body tore uh, the flesh in his hands and his feet where the nails were, had him fastened to the cross. Jesus Christ was dying to save sinners. A little later that morning, probably around 10, maybe closer to 11, the Bible says that one of the thieves on the cross turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus put the brakes on purchasing our salvation and he turned it to win that one soul to himself. And he said, today... Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. It wasn't a few minutes after that that John looked down from the cross and there at his feet he saw Mary, his own mother, and a few other ladies with her, and he saw John, the apostle, standing there. John, the previous night, had betray not betrayed, but had forsaken the Lord along with the other ten. All of them, and, and yet John now has returned to the Savior. And he's standing at his feet, looking up at Jesus Christ. John, Jesus looks down and addresses Mary. And then he turns to John and says, John, behold thy mother about Mary. Now Mary was not the mother of John. Why did Jesus say that? Jesus was saying this in essence, John, Joseph is gone. From the time Jesus is 12 years old in Luke chapter 2 on, you won't find Joseph anywhere. We're left to believe that he probably died a premature death. Joseph is gone. And Jesus indicated my, my half-brothers and half-sisters, they're not fit. None of them got saved until after the resurrection. And John, I'm about to check out of here. And John, my mama, she's getting old. I want you to take her home with you and treat her like your mother the rest of her life. And so he did. Now, I don't know if you can see the wisdom in that or not. Why didn't Jesus choose one of the other apostles for that task? Why not Peter? Peter could have learned some gracious lessons about language, how to talk nice from her. He had a problem with that. Why not Thomas? He could have maybe got her faith strengthened by watching hers, 
his faith strengthened. Why not one of the other disciples? Why John? Well, you have to understand that John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And he wrote the Revelation. Revelation is that book, the last book in the Bible, that is all about the glory of Jesus Christ and his return. What would better prepare John to be the revelator than to get to sit at the feet of Mary? I'm talking about the Blessed Virgin. To get to sit at her feet and pick her brain. You know, hey, some of you know as well as I do that old people like to reminisce. Can you imagine John every day sitting at the feet of Mary in front of the fireplace just picking her brain? We're talking about the one who bore the Son of God, in whom the Son of God was conceived. We're talking about the one who carried him in her womb for nine months and then went through the rigors of the birth process with him. We're talking about the one who raised him, changed his diapers, nursed him, taught him when he was a child. John got to sit at her feet. And pick her brain. What, what could better prepare John to be the revelator? Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Then the Bible says at 12 noon, God drowned the entire world in darkness. God pulled the shades over the sun, the moon, and the stars. Drowned the entire world in darkness at 12 noon. The reason being, God in essence, metaphorically at least, had turned his back on his only begotten son. God could not look upon the spectacle of his own son being made our sin for us. And so he drowned the world in blackness so the rest of the world couldn't see it either. Just before the lights came back on at 3 o'clock that afternoon, Jesus was heard to cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. In our language, that's my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? God had disowned his only begotten son on your behalf and mine. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Instantly thereafter, the lights came back on. God threw the shades back up that were over the sun, the moon, and the stars. The lights came back on again, and shortly thereafter, sometime between three and five, all of a sudden, Jesus cried out two words. I thirst! Well, he'd been on the cross since nine in the morning. He had, to, he, had, he, had to, he had to, the best he could with nails in his hands and feet, he had to pull his body up, the weight, just so he could get a breath. His lips were cracked. His tongue was swollen. His throat was closed up. He was craving one drop of water. I thirst. But more than that, he was craving for sinners to be saved. He was thirsty. More than that, he was thirsty to be back in fellowship with the Father. 
as he enjoyed before the world was. Jesus Christ was dying to save sinners. There wasn't no doubt just a few minutes after that that our Lord cried out one word in his language, Tetelestai. Three words in our language. It is finished. His suffering was about to end. The plan of redemption was about to be fulfilled. Every Old Testament picture and type, the tabernacle, the temple, all of the ceremonies, all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were about to be done with and fulfilled. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And then somewhere around 5 o'clock, possibly a little earlier, possibly a little later, Jesus cried out, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then the Bible says that Jesus bowed his head, voluntarily bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Second truth that you and I need to understand. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Secondly, God wants everybody to be saved. There is nobody, never has been, never will be, that God would be delighted to send to hell. If God could do it without violating his own holiness and sovereignty, this moment he would roll up his sleeve, reach into the abyss of hell, jerk out the likes of Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden and others, and save their wretched soul. Good thing you and I are God, isn't it? We'd jack up hell, cram them buzzards underneath it, and drop it on their head. But not God. There is absolutely nobody that God doesn't want to save. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. God said, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. In 1 John chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Peter said, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. May I say to you, my precious friend, if you're not saved, for you to go to hell, you have to climb over the love of God to get there. You have to ignore the will of God to go to hell. You have to trample under your feet the blood of Jesus Christ and despise the willing of His Holy Spirit in order to go to hell. God wants everybody saved. Years ago, when I first went to Bible college, I know you don't think I went, but I did, and you've already hurt my feelings. But in 1963, I went off to Bible college in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I was only 17, one of the professors there, Dr. Wymel Porter, one of the greatest Bible teachers I've ever heard. He's with the Lord now. Took me under his wing, me and a few other students. Every Tuesday night, we would go with Brother Porter to the Union Gospel Rescue Mission. It was a, their auditorium was about four times at least, five, six maybe, larger than this building. A large, very large rescue mission. Every night, 150 or 200 street people would gather. Some families, mostly men. They'd gather for a service. 
after the service, they'd line up over here and sign up. I'd check their belongings, what little I had in, and they'd go back to the back and eat a meal, and some of them would go upstairs and get a bed. On one particular night, I was leading the singing. I let I'm not, I, I want to tell you this before the service. I led the singing for the service every, every Tuesday night. And I, uh, that night I led the singing. I was sitting on a chair on the platform over the preacher's left shoulder. And I remember Dr. Porter preached that night on Jonah and the whale in the Old Testament. Went through the entire book of Jonah. I noticed during the service while Dr. Porter was preaching, the door came open in the back and a man walked in. He was, wearing a, he was wearing a blue windbreaker. He had both of his hands in his jacket pockets. And he came and he sat down on the back row on that side. And I watched him. He was disheveled. His hair was messed up. His, and uh, it was unshaven. And, and his face was dirty. I could see that he'd been sweating and crying. You could see rivers had run down, made a pattern in his face. He sat back in the back, and all the time the preacher was preaching, he sat there and he wept. At the end of the service, many people came forward, many got saved, and then they were lined up over here to get a meal and some to get a room upstairs, except that man. He sat back there and didn't move. And so I did a dumb thing. I, I was 17, you know, I didn't know much better. I went, I just thought, I'm going to go back and talk to him. So I went back and I sat next to that man and I put my hand on his shoulder. I don't recall if I got his name or not, but I said, Sir, are you saved? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, Son, God cannot save me. So what would you say, preacher? I argued with him. So why would you argue? I'd already quoted both the Bible verses I knew. So I argued. When all else fails, argue. They'll either get you out of a scrap or dig you deeper into it. He said, God cannot save me. I said, that's where you're wrong. God wants to save you. He said, son, God cannot save me. I said, sir, God can save you. We were raising a ruckus back there. Got people's attention. Four or five or six others. Bible college students gathered around to be spectators, not to help. But all that time we argued with that man. He looked at me and he said, Son, he said, if you knew what I have just done, you wouldn't say God can save me. God cannot save me. I said, I don't care what you've done. God can save you. He said, but if you knew what I'd done, you wouldn't say that. So I did a real stupid thing. Stupid, that's a Hebrew word. I did a stupid thing. I said, what have you done? And with that, he pulled his right hand out of his coat pocket, and in his hand was a warm thirty-eight revolver with two empty chambers. And I said, oh, what have you done? And he told us that just before the service, only about two hours ago, two blocks down the road on a seventh floor apartment, he and his brother, his biological brother, had had a fight. And with that gun, he shot twice and killed 
his own brother, and his brother was laying that moment in a puddle of blood on the seventh floor. Needless to say, we called the authorities, and they did what had to be done. But I told you that story for, to tell you this. It doesn't matter what we said to him. It doesn't matter what songs we sang, what poems we recited, what scripture we quoted. It did not matter. We could not convince him God wants to save anybody. Hey, I'm news for you. You can't go so low that you're out of God's reach. God wants to save you. So much so, if I can say it, you understand I'm talking metaphorically, his heart breaks when you refuse his love. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. God wants everybody saved. The third truth, just equally as simple, God calls everybody to be saved. Listen to me carefully. Contrary to what John Calvin's disciples teach, there's not a person who has ever lived who has reached an age where they can understand the gospel. And it's different with everybody. There's not a person that has ever lived that God hasn't called. God extends a call to every sinner to be saved. Listen to what the Bible says. John 12, verse 23. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all, A-double-L, all men to me. Did it ever occur to you? All means all. And that's all it means. There ain't no more than all. Jesus said, if you put me on the cross, I will draw all men to me. There's not a person on the face of the earth. But God doesn't draw. In the Old Testament, God put it this way in Isaiah 45 and verse 22. He said, look unto me. So all you got to do is look with the eye of faith. Look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. God calls every sinner. Good, bad, or indifferent. Red, yellow, black, or white. Rich or poor makes no difference. God calls all to be saved. I found in the Bible at least three ways that God calls sinners. Sometimes God will use conscience to call a sinner. Now here's a scripture for that. Romans 1.19 says this. says that uh, the invisible things of God He has revealed Let me give you the exact wording. I want you to get the proper gist. Romans 1.19 that which may be known of God, and by the way, he's talking about the heathen who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. He says, however, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. Did it ever occur to you that if you want a child to believe in God, you don't have to teach him there is a God, there is a God, there is a God. All you've got to do is start teaching him what God is like and start answering his questions. However, if you want a child to be an atheist, you do have to teach him there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. Why is that? Conscience. God has put that much light 
in the soul of every individual, God calls through conscience. I, I, I don't know how many times I've heard a missionary at a missions conference who would, who would get up and testify, then maybe to the jungles of New Guinea or, or, or Hottentot, Africa. I'm going to this remote village out in the heart of Africa where, where, where no white man has been maybe ever, at least for many centuries. And the chieftain will come out and meet them at the outskirts of the village and through some means of primary communication will say, where have you been? We've been waiting for you. God Paul's sometimes he'll use conscience. God promised in Romans 1 that if a person, even in heathen Africa or pagan anywhere, will follow what little light they have and seek the truth and desire the truth, that God will see to it somehow that they get the truth. God calls through conscience. God also calls through creation. In Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20, the Bible says that the invisible things about God are clearly seen in creation. The Bible says in Psalm 19, I believe it is verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Do you realize that, that uh, the book of Job is one of the most, if not the most, theological book, doctrinal book in the entire Bible. At least in the Old Testament, maybe the entire Bible. But wait a minute. Job was written sometime between Abraham and between Noah and Abraham. For a little overlap period there. Job was written between Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. So how do you know that? Well, Job mentions the, the Genesis account of creation as history. Job mentions the creation of man as history. Job mentions the fall of man, that's in Genesis 3, as history. Job mentions the curse on man because of the fall, that's Genesis 4. Job mentions that as history. Job mentions the flood of Noah's day, that's Genesis 6 and 7 as a historical happening. Job mentions the post-flood world. That's Genesis 8 and 9. As history. Job mentions some of the nations in the list of nations of Genesis 10. That table of nations. So Job had to have been written after that period. However, Job is the only book in the entire Bible that not one single time mentions Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Jews. And that started in Genesis 12. So Job had to have been written sometime between Genesis 10 and Genesis 12. And yet, Job is so full of theology. I mean, the, the entire book reeks, especially in the last few chapters, reeks with, with, with layers of theology, theological teaching. Where in the world do you think Job learned all that about God? Well, you read chapters 38, 39, and 40, you'll find out he learned much of it from creation. God said in the New Testament, the invisible things about God are clearly seen 
by His creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. God calls through conscience. God calls through creation. But the primary way God calls, and even if He uses conscience or creation, the way God calls is through conviction. Now we call it conviction. The Bible word is reproof. It means the same thing. It refers to a convincing. Jesus said this in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. He said that when the Holy Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost, He will reprove the world of the sin of unbelief, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and of the judgment of God upon sin on Calvary because of His righteousness. I'm saying, neighbor, God calls sinners. God calls all sinners. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. God wants everybody to be saved. God calls everybody to be saved. And then lastly, listen to me carefully, God turns none away. There's nobody, nobody could come to God through Jesus Christ in sincere faith, as simple as it may be, as simplistic as it may be. Nobody comes in sincerity believing that God says, nope, you haven't got it. He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus said that. By the way, that means when you come, he won't cast you out, and from then on, he'll never cast you out. Did it occur to you what eternal means? Eternal is an unconditional word. It doesn't mean eternal unless or eternal until. It means eternal. If you can get it today and lose it tomorrow, it's not eternal. If you can get it today and lose it a hundred years from now, it's not eternal. Eternal means eternal. And Jesus said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Over the years, I've preached in churches. I've preached in churches of two or three or less, up to a thousand or more. I've preached in, I've preached in bars, in the bar. I've preached in rescue missions. I've preached in prisons. I've preached in one prison in the Segovia unit in um, Harlingen, Texas, where all the federal prisoners from that sector of the country are bled back into society by spending 16 months in that prison. Get them ready to go back into society. I've seen rapists saved. I've seen serial killers born again. I've seen drug addicts and drug pushers. I'm talking about the cartel kind get saved. I've seen the most wicked You and I would consider to be the most wicked people on the face of the earth. Get born again, and that's no credit to the soul winner or the preacher. That's to his credit only. What I'm saying is God doesn't turn anybody away. In John 6, 37, where Jesus said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Why didn't he just say, I will not cast out? Why did he say, in no wise? Why did he stretch it out like that? 
Because in, you know, in the English language, a double negative makes a positive. If you don't understand that, I'll explain it to you over dinner. A double negative. You use two negatives in one sentence, you have canceled out the negativeness. It's a positive. However, in the language of the Bible, a double negative doesn't make a positive. A double negative strengthens the negation or the negativeness of that negative. Behind that word, never, are two negatives. So it's translated correctly for us, obviously. He not come to me. I will in no wise cast out. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. God wants everybody to be saved. God calls everyone to be saved. God turns none away. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm hoping that I didn't tell you this story when I was here last, what would have been August or September, for the men's advanced conference. Um, if I have, let your Alzheimer's kick in. I won't tell it anyway. In the 1890s, American evangelist Dwight Lyman Moody, D.L. Moody, just, just a couple of years before he died, he went, to, he went to London, England, and just outside of the city of London was a small coal mining town. And they held a meeting there. They rented a huge hall, and thousands of people crammed into the meeting. Some outside were listening. Every night, for a couple of weeks at least, the American evangelists would thunder the gospel message to thousands of people. Every night, every night, hundreds would go down the island. Hundreds would get saved every night. One particular miner decided he'd go to the meeting just out of curiosity, and he went to the meeting, sat back up the aisle, way back in the back, as far away as he could get. And he sat there patiently as the preacher, Moody, thundered the gospel message. At the end of the service, during the invitation, hundreds were filing down the aisle to kneel at the altar and give their heart to Jesus Christ. God got a hold of that old boy's heart. He stepped out into the aisle and he started down the aisle. He found a place, a space where he could kneel. And somebody came up to him with an open Bible and shared with him the gospel and how to be saved and to pray with him. And that night, that coal miner gave his heart to Jesus Christ. However, as some, and maybe some of you have experienced this, I don't know, he just didn't seem to, you know, get it settled. It just wasn't settled in his heart. When it came time to close the building and go home. They told him, we're going to have to leave now and lock up the building. He said, I'm not leaving. He said, I refuse to leave until I get it settled. I don't have it settled yet. He stayed there till almost midnight. And finally got it settled. They locked the doors and he went home. He climbed into bed, got up a few hours later and went down to the coal mines to begin working. It was in the mine and halfway through the morning there was a terrible explosion. The mine collapsed and he was buried under a ton of, I should say under tons of coal. All the coal miners rushed to his rescue, tried to 
rescue him before it was too late. Other coal mines shut down and their workers came. People from the other surrounding towns came to try to dig this man out from under that coal. A few hours later, they pulled his mangled, twisted body out from under that mountain of coal. His friends gathered around. As they stood staring, they noticed that his mouth was moving just a tiny bit. But they couldn't hear a thing. Three of them got on their knees and one at a time. The first one, he laid his ear right on the mouth of the coal miner. And here's what he heard. backed off and the second one put his ear on the coal miner's lips and he heard this I'm glad I got it settled last night the third one put his ear down to the coal miner's face and he heard Suppose tomorrow morning you're driving to work. I mean, you know, nobody hopes this will happen, but it's a possibility with any of us. Or in the afternoon you're driving home. And all of a sudden, you should, you should be startled by the screeching of rubber on the road, brakes squealing. You should feel the sudden impact of tons of metal against metal. Broken glass flying everywhere and you should be the victim. Would you be able to say, I'm glad I got it settled yesterday? What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying if you haven't got it settled, now's the time. You are not promised another opportunity. You'll notice that every single time without fail that you hear the gospel, you find it easier to say no and harder to say yes. May I say one time, sometime you'll get to the place where you won't hear the voice but the Holy Spirit who is presently doing the wooing. He'll say, in essence, okay, you don't want it. I'll go talk to somebody else. I'll never bother you about it again. If you want to, just go on and go to hell. I'll never bother you again. Genesis 6, verse 3. My spirit shall not always strive with man. It will never be easier to be saved for you than it is right now. Would you bow with me, please, for prayer? Every head bow, every eye closed. Sis, if you could find your way to the piano... Just prepare the song of your choice. After I pray, I'll give you a signal like this to begin. Please listen carefully. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. How many in this room can honestly say, Preacher, I am 100% sure for a Bible reason. If I were to die right now, I'd go to heaven. I'm saved and I know it. If you can say yes to that just between you, me, and the Lord, 
Julia 